Just before I begin this morning, I do want to um, give special greetings to those of you who are following us on the Internet. Very grateful for your presence. I think there are at least 16 individuals or families from different parts uh, of the country and the world. It's especially a delight to have Susie, uh, the former Susie Edwards, with us today, and also uh, Bill and Joe, and I think perhaps Kim and Keith Withrow, uh, together down in Orlando, uh, participating with us. We, we miss you and love you and are glad that you're with us. And also uh, the, the Bluers, as always, we love you and are praying for you. And it's good to have Beth and Ken Gowdy with us, uh, Beth Lutz, the former Beth Lutz. So those are just a few. Thank you for being with us. I want to remind you as well that tomorrow is a very important day in the history of our church because there will be an auction for the property. And our prayer is that those who uh, bid will uh, raise one another higher and higher so that a large portion of what we need to uh, yet acquire will be met even in the auction. Please pray for God's kind and gracious providence tomorrow. And then finally, just to mention that tonight at 715, Brother Duane and Kimberly will be sharing with us in a more extended way about their trip to Romania. Um, if you care about the cause of God in Romania, and I'm sure you do, and if you care about their sense of calling and their need to determine the will of God, please come. Please come and show your interest and pray for them. We know that it's a problem for many of you, and we, we apologize sincerely. We had to weigh the downside of putting that more extended opportunity for listening and watching and hearing and questioning and praying to a later time against the problem of parents with children, and it was it's difficult. But we just didn't feel we could give Dwayne 25 minutes for a month of ministry. Tonight is our family meeting. We have other matters. So please um, understand and, if possible, make the sacrifice and be with us for that wonderful time. Now, we're in Judges, chapter 15. And by way of review, I'm simply going to say that in my first sermon, we considered Samson's times. The second week, we considered his birth. Last Lord's Day morning, we considered his marriage. And today, we are going to continue to consider his feats. And I'm, I'm using that word that's spelled F-E-A-T-S, not F-E-E-T. It's not about Samson's feet. It's, uh, you know, his right foot and his left foot, his feet, no. It's about his uh, courageous acts that God enabled him to perform for God's own purposes. So we're going to be seeing something. We've already seen two. Uh, one was the killing of the lion, and the other was the slaying of the 30 men from Ashkelon. We need to always remember the purpose for which Samson was raised up. The angel of the Lord, who was really our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, making an appearance, a Christophany, he told Samson's mother why he was going to be born and raised up. His exact words were these, quote, He shall begin 
Key word, begin, not complete. David completed it. King David. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's what the life of Samson is about. It's not about him committing adultery uh, with the two prostitutes. It's not about him, not essentially, about him giving in to his fleshly desires to marry a woman who was not an Israelite and a woman of faith. It's not essentially about him telling his secret to Delilah. These four chapters are essentially and primarily about God keeping his covenant promise and God redeeming his people. We have to always remember that's very important. And that's exactly what Samson did. He began to deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines in spite of his spiritual weaknesses and in spite of his moral failures. Unprayed for, remember, Israel didn't cry out for this particular judge. God just graciously initiated the redemption by sending Samson. Unprayed for, God sovereignly gave him to Israel and enabled him to keep the Philistines continually off balance. He was a major distraction to the Philistines. They found themselves preoccupied with him and not with the nation of Israel. In his unique judgeship, which lasted, as we were just reminded in the reading, for 20 years, Samson single-handedly, that's one of the things that make him a unique judge, he, he didn't raise up an army, he didn't seek any assistance, single-handedly, Samson killed over 4,000 Philistines. In the passage that we study this morning, we don't know how many people he killed in Timnah, but some estimate probably at least a hundred. It was a major victory. And we know that he's already killed 30. So, and then we're going to see today that he kills a thousand. And God willing, next week we're going to see that he kills 3,000. So when you put it all together, it's at least 4,130, at least. God raised him up to do this great work. So the Philistines became fearful of him. And they were paralyzed, in a sense, by him. And they had to back way off. And in a sense, the land had a kind of rest from the Philistines for the 20 years during his judgeship. The fact of the matter is, dear brothers and sisters, God blessed Samuel's judgeship. And by the way, since um, Daryl made a remark about Samson's hair, I'm just going to slip this in right now because some of you may not hear this next week. and Maybe I won't make the point. But, you know, really and truly, the secret to his power wasn't in his hair. The secret to his power was in God. He was dedicated to be a Nazarite. The hair was symbolic of his separation unto God, his complete and perfect devotion to God. And when he despised the symbol of it, of course, God withdrew his strength. There was no strength, of course, in the hair itself. But this man was so used of God. In spite of his flaws, in spite of his unbelief, in spite of Israel's unbelief, in spite of Israel's compromise. And the reason is because God is a covenant 
covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He has a redemptive purpose for the world. All of the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham, according to his promise. He's going to bring forth a Messiah out of Israel. The nation must be preserved. So he raises up judges to save the nation. And then he raises up prophets, priests, and kings to save the nation. And then he brings forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Savior redeems his people. The gospel goes worldwide. And guess what? Heritage Baptist Church is born. And it's made up of members who were ransomed by this promised Messiah. And that's why many of you sit here today saved. That's your connection to Samson. Believe it or not, I didn't fabricate that. Samson was part of God's major plan to preserve a nation and to produce a Messiah. Samson was a part of it. Thank God for Samson and the other 11. Because it's a, it's a picture of God's grace and mercy and sovereignty and truthfulness to his commitments. So that's why he was raised up. That's what God was up to in these four chapters. They're primarily about God, God who is a gracious Savior. Now, I want to just real quickly remind you again, as I did last week, of what happens here. We'll do this very briefly. It's, you can tell just by looking at the text that it's sort of a, an uninterrupted narrative, and it is a narrative. And right now in our mentoring class, the, the men who are trying to develop their ability to preach are trying to learn together how to preach from narratives. They have their own unique challenge. And what we need to do is to see how this story fits into the big story. The Bible is the big story. And every story in the Bible fits into the big story. And that's why I've already given you the key to understanding the purpose of the life and the judgeship of Samson. But what, what happened in this passage, which Daryl just read for us, was, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, Samson's cooled down. You remember, if you were here last week, he was very angry because his so-called groomsmen had weaseled the, the solution to the riddle out of his wife. She betrayed him. She was more fearful of them than she was faithful to her husband. And so he lost the contest, and he had to go somewhere and come up with 30 changes of clothes, both inner and outer garments. So he went to Ashkelon, and he killed 30 men. Seems brutal. No, these are the enemies of God. God is using Samson as a deliverer. And he's so angry that he actually goes back to Zorah to stay with his parents for an undetermined period of time. And after he cools down, he decides, I, could, I should go back and make things right with my wife. I'm still very troubled about what she did, but I love her and I want to be married to her. So he goes back and he anticipates standing at the door and knocking. In our culture, he would be perhaps with some roses behind his back, hoping that she would come to the door. In fact, he brought with him a young goat because it was going to be a time of feasting and celebrating. And he wanted to go into her bedroom and consummate the marriage and to restore it and 
Her dad says, nothing doing. Because, by the way, she's married to another man. I gave her to your best man because you didn't seem like you loved her and cared for her. You seemed to have abandoned her. And then he's really mad. And you know what he did? He did something that we read and we just read it and we sort of take it in stride and we said, wait a minute, what? What? He caught not one fox. I'd I'd like to give you guys a challenge this week. (laughs) I'd like any one of you to catch one fox. Even with a trap. He didn't have those nice traps that people use today. He didn't catch one. He caught 300. And he kept them in some kind of a pen. This was very calculated. He's a self-controlled man in some regards. And when he gets them all together, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to burn hundreds and hundreds of acres of crops. Because these Philistines hate God and his people. And I was raised, my mom told me that, we surely have to imagine that Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, from the earliest days said, son, God has a special purpose for you. Probably he heard the story over and over of how God met with her and met with dad and told them that he was to be a Nazarite and that he was going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He knew that. He was self-conscious of it. So this isn't all about personal vindication. Yes, he was very angry, but he knew he was also serving God's purposes. He says, I'm going to burn hundreds and hundreds of acres. He ties the fox's tails together, puts a torch between them, lights them. There's sort of a picture of it on the, on the bulletin. And off they go. You can imagine foxes tied together, jumping around, running around, helter-skelter, bringing fire everywhere they went. The standing crops were burned. Those that had been gathered in sheaves were burned. The orchards were burned. The olive groves were burned. It was a major disaster. And it was a major economic crisis for the area of Timnah. And then that causes another retaliation. Notice this pattern back and forth. In a minute, I'm going to comment on it. Every time the Philistines think they're one up and have had a victory, you know what they really got was a defeat. They think they won the riddle, and they did, and they lose 30 men's lives. They think that they've won over Samson because he lost his wife, and they lose all their crops. Who really wins? And as we go on with the story, we're going to see they keep trying to deal with Samson, and every time they try to deal with him, instead of winning, they actually lose. Because God is using this man to preserve his nation and to deal with the Philistines. And so, after the fire, they're so mad. They say, why did he do this? And someone says, because his wife's dad gave her to someone else. And then they're mad at him. They're mad at his ex-wife and they're mad at her Dad, and they go and they burn her and burn him. Just a little observation. Do you remember what the 30 groomsmen said to Samson's wife? They said, if you don't give us the solution to this riddle, we're going to burn you and your dad to death. And out of fear, she betrays her husband and a God of justice 
still causes her to be burned. And many commentators took occasion to point out that when we, out of fear and unbelief, sin against God, we shouldn't be surprised if the very thing we're fleeing from ends up becoming our disaster. And so she's burned, her, her father is burned, and they think it's a victory. Oh, no, because Daryl read for us how he actually killed many of the Philistines there in Timnah. And that's where we don't know how many. As I said, some have estimated perhaps a hundred. Our Bibles say that he struck them down hip and thigh. That's just an idiomatic expression, meaning it was a total, total wipeout for them. He killed so many of them, they couldn't stand before him. So who wins? The Philistines win for burning his ex-wife and her dad? I don't think so. And Samson goes off, and he sort of retreats for a while in, a, in the cleft of a, of a rock called Edom. And it's a high place, and perhaps he's just saying, let's see what happens next. And what happens next is that an army from the Philistines come into Judah with the intention to capture Samson. And the Israelites say, why are you here? And they say, we want Samson. They say, well, let us get him for you. And they muster an army of 3,000, and the 3,000 come to Samson, 3,000 Israelites, and they say, Samson, why are you causing all this trouble for us? Don't you know that the Philistines are ruling over us? We're going to capture you, and we're going to give, him to the, give you to the Philistines. And he says, okay, I only ask one thing. Please don't kill me. And they say, no, we won't kill you. Isn't this terrible when you think about it? We won't kill you, Sam. We're not going to kill you, Samson. We're going to give you over to the Philistines and let them kill you. You are our best hope. You are the Savior sent from God to us. You are an amazingly potential judge. We've heard that you killed a lion. We've heard that you slew 30 in Ashkelon. We now see what you did there in Timnah. But we don't want you. We'd rather be ruled by the Philistines than to have to go to war. Sorry, Samson, but we won't kill you. We're just going to give you over to them and let them kill you. And what, what would you have done if you had Samson's strength at that point? <laughs> if you weren't real sanctified? <laughs> we might have read that he killed a thousand Israelites. No, he's not going to shed the blood of his fellow Israelites his fellow countrymen, very passively, he says, it's okay. Then just bind me with two new ropes, and you can successfully hand me over. And he does, and you know what happened. As soon as the Philistines shout because they think they've got their man, he just goes, boom. And and the the ropes break, kind of like in a Credible Hulk fashion. I don't know if his shirt split or not. Um, he, uh, he broke them like they were threads. And he looks for the nearest instrument of implement that he could use to kill these that are coming to him. And he finds the fresh jawbone of an ass. It's not old and brittle. And it has teeth in it. And he starts swinging and hacking with that thing. And as they come to him, he kills one after another after another. And probably they came in groups. They they were saying, look, what's happening? We've got to get a bigger group. Let's go. We'll all go at once. 
And, he, and so heaps upon heaps. And by supernatural enablement, the same thing that he obviously had to have in order to catch three, 300 foxes. He kills a thousand. And they retreat. Now, what you would expect to read in your Bible. So the Israelites, the 3,000, realize he is their true deliverer. Let's pursue the Philistines. Let's make this the beginning of victory. Let's make this the breaking out of our bondage to the Philistines. No. They don't do anything. And even when he's practically dying from thirst, not one of them brings him something to drink or something to eat. I'm going to have more this in just a moment and so he writes a little song with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey i have struck down a thousand men interestingly in the hebrew the word for donkey and the word for heaps are the same and some in fact the translators of the niv believe that he was writing a song with a pun and they translate it this way. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. Maybe. But one thing's for sure, they looked very foolish. And then in the last part of the chapter, you know what happened. He was just utterly exhausted and obviously dehydrated. And just has no energy and literally believes he's going to die or at least be killed by the rest of the Philistines. It was probably a very large army because he said, I'm now I'm going to fall into the hands of the uncircumcised God unless you come to my rescue. Please, God, in essence, please, I beg of you, you who have just so wonderfully delivered me and given me this great victory. Oh, God, please now refresh me and sustain me. I'm thirsty unto death. And God causes a rock to split open, and it was a rock that apparently was used in that area for a mortar. They're called in the Hebrew mortar cups. A mortar is something in which you grind grain. And God says, yeah, I, I can make you some water. Boom. He breaks the rock. And I imagine that was very refreshing Delicious water to drink. You know, sometimes when you're thirsty, nothing in the world is better than a cool, cold glass of water. God meets the need of his servant. And so there, there's the story, okay? You, you had it, but I just want you to get the sequence very clearly. Now, you can imagine the kind of confusion this was causing in Philistia. There, they... What do you do with Samson? We sent an army to get him. An army against one man. And he kills a thousand of us. He slays a lion. He kills 30 in Ashkelon. He catches 300 foxes and burns our crops. He kills more people in Timnah. And now he's slain a thousand. What do we do? Well, what they actually did apparently was to back off. All of this happened pretty much in the first year of Samson's judgeship. And the Bible tells us, as we, we just read, that he judged Israel for, for um, 20 years. And what happens in chapter 16 with the, with the two uh, harlots, um, with Delilah, happened the last year of his life. 
Why am I telling you? All of the stuff preceded was on the front end of his judgeship. Why am I telling you that? Because we have a tendency, as I made clear last week, just to focus on his sin. I'll bet you Samson lived in fornication the whole time he was a judge. Really? Really? And God puts him in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith? Really? And I said, we have to be careful. Do you want people to judge you for a day or a year or a week of your life? Don't you want to be judged on the basis of your overall tenor of your life? That's one reason I, I stress this. So he, he becomes a judge, but, and, and there seems to be a, a kind of rest for the land. We don't hear about them making more invasions. And once again, at the end of his life, they think they've got a victory. Because Delilah cuts his hair, he breaks his vow, God removes his strength, they capture him, they blind him, and they make sport of him. But you know what happens. We're going to see it next week. What, what a character this guy was for the Philistines to deal with. They were in utter confusion of him. I can imagine the... The networks, if they had networks during those days, and they had anything like we have now, I can kind of hear the CNN reporter giving the real liberal slant on, well, we're dealing with this man. He lost a riddle. We outwitted him. We, um, we took care of his wife and his father. Oh, he did a little damage, but we really took care of that problem and, and minimize everything. And then over here, you hear the guy from Fox News telling the truth. <laughs> Can you imagine these two guys talking at the same time? If you got, you know, you got two different slants, it would be a conflation of report. And as I was thinking about this week, I remembered a story uh, that, that Pastor Mark Dever tells in his book, Nine Marks. And it's so short, and I think you'll enjoy this, and it illustrates the point. It's only um, one paragraph, but this is, the, this is the setup. It says, It must have been with unreserved horror that the editor of an English newspaper a little more than 100 years ago opened his printed and distributed paper to find in it a most embarrassing, unintentional, typographical conflation of two stories. Two stories somehow got mixed up in one. One story being about a patent pig-killing and sausage-making machine, and the other about a local clergyman, the Reverend Dr. Mudge, who was being presented with a gold-headed cane. A portion of the famously mangled story reads as follows. This really happened. Quote, several of Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday, and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than to thank those around him 
for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and in less time than it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into a delicious sausage. <laughs> the occasion will be long remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. <laughs> the, pe the best pieces can be procured for a tenpence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that he has been treated so handsomely. <laughs> that, that's, that's confusion there. That's a conflation. And I'm telling you, the Philistines were very confused and conflated about Samson. Are we winning or are we losing? The liberal says, of course we're one up. The reality newscaster says, no, we're losing big time. That's what God raised Samson up to do. And so today we see two more major feats, F-E-A-T-S, in this life. The capturing of 300 foxes and burning acres and acres of produce and the slaying of a number of men, actually three things, a number of people in Timnah, and finally, the killing of a thousand soldiers that belonged to the Philistines. Those were feats. And you may notice in your text that just before he slew the thousand, it says in verse 14, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Can I just point out that, that that's only said three times of Samson. The first time was with regard to the lion in chapter 14, verse 8. The second time was with regard to the 30 that he slew in Ashkelon, chapter 14, verse 19. And the third time was in chapter 15 and verse 14. It doesn't mean that it wasn't God who helped him on the other occasions. It just means these were unique times when God's spirit especially empowered Samson. Okay, ready for the, the applications. I have five. Number one. And, and I don't know how better to treat this. I thought about breaking it down into sections, but I'm just going to give you five things that I think we, we can learn from this account. There are many, many more. We need to understand and fear what I'm going to call the debilitating, and that's just a big word for weakening, the weakening influence of unbelief. We need to understand and fear the dangerous, weakening influence of unbelief. So what are you talking about? I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about this nation. Their problem fundamentally was unbelief. They did not know the Lord. They did not trust the Lord. That's why they were unwilling to try to throw off the yoke. That's why they felt the pressure to acquiesce. And so they did. That's why they didn't have the courage to try to fight against the Philistines. That's what caused them to look upon their enemies with a sort of fear and favor. 
Instead of seeing Samson as their true friend, they saw him as someone who had betrayed them. And instead of looking upon the Philistines as the true tyrant, they saw them as the ones that would protect them. That's, that's the confusing, debilitating, weakening influence of unbelief. It causes you to see everything wrong, and it weakens you, and it takes away from you the determination to fight against those things that seem to have the rule over you. And I want to make this applicable to all of us, because I think even though we are not unbelievers in the same way that Israel as a whole was. Unbelief is a part of our lives. We fight against it. And because of our unbelief, you know what? We, even we, tend to look upon our enemies. And I'm not thinking so much now about people. I'm thinking about stuff in our lives that's, that we're fighting against. Enemies of our soul. We tend to look upon our enemies as our lords. See, that's what the Israelites said. Said Samson, don't you understand that the Philistines are ruling over us? They're, they're our rulers. You don't do that kind of stuff when you're under someone's rule. What kind of language is that? But the devil comes to us in our own unbelief, listens to us whisper, and he says, you know, you know that drugs are your ruler, you're not going to you're not going to get a victory over that Lord. You know, don't you, that pornography isn't something that you can overcome. It's your Lord. It's your ruler. And so he speaks to us about our laziness, our gossip, our proneness to be critical, our materialism, our fear of man. And you can add to that whatever you find to be an enemy of your soul. And I just want to say to you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, that's unbelief. God means for us to conquer the enemies of our souls. That's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit lives within us. God is determined to make us like his son, not just when we're glorified. He begins that at the point of conversion. He wills that I should wholly be. Who can withstand his will? The counsels of his grace in me he surely shall fulfill. That's what the songwriter said. So we need to roll up our sleeves and say, no, this is unbelief. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to fight this thing. This is the Philistine in my life. I'm not going to remain under its rulership. By the grace of God, I can throw this yoke off. And I'm going to. So instead of rejecting our true Savior like the Israelites did and relying on a false Savior, we need to fight against these things. So, dear people, let's, let's fight. And let's make sure that, that we have a faith that is born out of true conversion. I'm glad that Jonathan prayed about the Reformation today. I'm glad that he reminded us of Martin Luther. And you know that among other great doctrines that he defended was the doctrine of sola fide, only faith. Faith is the only instrument. Faith alone justifies. But justifying faith, as our confession says, is never alone. Attached and welded to that saving faith is a desire to become like Christ and to roll up our sleeves and to grow in grace. 
and to experience sanctification. Where there's no desire to be sanctified, there's no evidence of true justification. And so, let's fight against the Philistines that we sometimes fear are ruling over us. Number two, I want to remind you again, even though I've said it this morning, that Samson was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. Now, again, I know that we say, wait a minute. He married somebody he shouldn't have married. That's right. He consorted with some prostitutes. It's true. At the very end of his judgeship, he fell into sin with Delilah. That's true. But that's not the whole of his life. Fundamentally, he was a man of faith. And we see his faith in the feats that he accomplished. I've mentioned them. I'm not going to mention them again. And we see it in his prayers. Notice what he says in verse 18. When he's so desperate, he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. I was but an instrument. You granted this great salvation. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He knew who was the true Savior. He knew that he was a Savior small s and that God was a Savior capital S. He believed that. He was persuaded of it. There are only two prayers in the record of Samson in these four chapters. This is one. The other one's in chapter 16, you know, just before he pulls the pillars of the temple down. He calls upon God. Why does he pray? Because he believes. Why does he look to God? Because he trusts. How did he judge Israel for 20 years and end up in the hall of faith? Because in spite of all of his flaws... He was a man of faith. And you know what? I find encouragement in that. And I want to encourage you with it. Because what I want to conclude, and I think it's justifiable, is that true God-honoring faith can abide in the soul of a flawed man or woman. Did you hear me? True God-honoring faith can and does abide in the souls of flawed Men and women. In fact, dear people, that's the only place it can abide in the soul of a flawed man or woman. So we need to be encouraged. We look at our lives and say, I'm just so flawed. Yes, we are flawed and we should care about it and we should try to make progress. I just made that point. But don't succumb to despair. Step back and say, how do I even know I'm flawed? Why do I even care I'm flawed? Why do I want to do something about my flaws? Because God has been gracious to me. I've been born again. I've been converted. I've been saved. I have faith. And the faith of the size of a grain of mustard seed, be it ever so small, if it is true saving faith, can do great things for God. So, dear brothers and sisters, don't despair about the littleness of your faith. Hardly anything could be more God-honoring than for you to ask for an increase of your faith. But remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Number three, we must always be on guard against our proneness to pride, which even after wonderful deliverances by God, tries to take credit to ourselves as if we had obtained the victory all on our own. What am I saying? Be careful about pride, because even after God wonderfully blesses us, we have a proneness to take the credit. 
And that kind of pride comes before a fall. And God will find a way graciously and often quickly to show us how utterly dependent we are upon him. And you say, okay, good point. I think you're right. I'm sure I agree with that. Where do you see that? I see that in Samson's song. Now, I, I could be making too much of it, so I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm not absolutely sure that it was pride that caused him to write that song. But I have to wonder, why? Because it doesn't say anything about God. Am I making too much of it when I emphasize the word I, the personal pronoun? Listen, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I, have I struck down a thousand men? Maybe there wasn't pride in that. But I would have been happier, and I think if we all were to write such a song, we would have been more God-honoring if we would have said, with the jawbone of a donkey, can you imagine, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, God enabled me to strike down a thousand men. If I'm right, then it may make some sense that almost immediately after that, we read, of Samson being desperate, desperate, dependent, dependent. And by the way, when he threw the jawbone down, he the place was called, was called Ramoth Lehi. You know what Ramoth means? Ramoth means hill. Lehi means jawbone. And that's why the title of the sermon There's no effort at all to be cute or humorous. Flaming foxes and the battle of Jawbone Hill. That's what it came to be known. Jawbone Hill. And when the writer to Judges speaks before this incident of Lehi, he's speaking of it because that had become the new name by the time he wrote. Jawbone Hill. And the man who may have taken pride to himself is suddenly desperate he's at the point of death and i'm just suggesting to us dear people that when god is gracious to us and gives us unique and peculiar deliverances just say "Uh oh uh oh here it comes here it comes i don't know where but it's coming there's going to be a temptation for pride and i'm going to have to be very careful to say no 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 this is the glory goes to god and all of our songs need to give the glory to god because if they don't within a brief period of time, we're going to find God's going to say, okay, I'm going to have to humble you. Pride becomes, comes before a fall. I'm going to make you feel how desperately you need me. And that's what he did to Samson. And yet, he graciously answered Samson's prayer. And you know that fountain continued? Who knows? I was thinking about this yesterday when I was studying. That fountain may still be, that spring in a rock may still be somewhere in the land of Judea. You know, the mountains are on whatever the word is. There there are places all over Judea where people haven't actually been. But it lasted at least a long time. People probably went to say, I'm going to go get a drink where God supernaturally caused a rock to split. And how do we not think of our Savior when we think of God providing water and being reminded even this morning that he is the water of life. 
Last observation. We, all of us, have a desperate need for supernatural help and empowerment. And we should be praying with Samson. Although it doesn't actually say he prayed for the help of the Holy Spirit. It just said the Holy Spirit came to him. He may have, but whether he did or not, we need to pray for it. Don't we need the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit? Are you afraid to pray for that? Holy Spirit, help me supernaturally. Well, if God anoints a sermon, is there something beyond human nature in the anointing of a sermon? Is there some God thing in that? Yes. Is that natural? No. We need to pray for the special help of the Holy Spirit in all of our endeavors. And we need to expect it. Not saying that we pray for the ability to speak in tongues. I'm saying that God does supernatural things through the ministry of his people. We need the Holy Spirit. And I think somehow we just don't pray often enough, earnestly enough, frequently enough for the help of the Holy Spirit. Talk to him, dear people, every day of your life. He's part of the Godhead. Express your utter and absolute dependence upon him. I'm not really making this the last point, but it's the last thing I want to say. We need to see some of the striking analogies between Samson and our Savior. Have you seen any of them? Now, I need to be very careful. I'm not saying that, um, that Samson is a type of Jesus in all these regards. I'm not sure about that. I'm just going to tell you, I'm not sure about that whole thing. I don't have to say that. This is what I can say. There's some striking analogies. There's some stuff in here that ought to at least make us think of the Lord Jesus. Okay? And I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning of his life with regard to his birth. But I'm just going to say from this text itself, there are some things here that at the very least seem similar. Israel was in bondage because of unbelief. God sent a savior by the name of Samson, small s, to preserve them and to deliver them from their unbelief. We, by nature, are unbelieving and we are in bondage to sin and God sends a greater than Samson. Think about Samson's rejection by his own people. He, the, the 3,000 Israelites come to him and say, Samson, we, we don't want to follow you. We don't like the idea of you being our judge. We like staying under the Philistines. Sorry, we're going to reject you. And we're also going to bind you. And we're going to deliver you over to the enemy. Our Savior came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was bound by his own people. He was delivered over to the enemy. But in the process, he conquered. There's some striking things. They accused him. They betrayed him. They bound him. They turned him over. He was powerfully anointed by the Holy Spirit. He burst the cords of bondage. Our Savior burst the cords of death. And he slew the enemy. Was this designed for sure to be a type of Christ? I don't know. But what I just said about our Savior is true. And so my mind goes to the Lord Jesus by way of contrast at least. And that's where I want your mind to be left today. That we have a Savior who was rejected, who willfully, passively obeyed 
and endured rejection and abuse and the very wrath of God so that he might triumph over our sin and death. And that's who I recommend to you this morning. Trust him as your only hope for salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We know that we've only scratched the surface of it. Help us to study it more and to contemplate it and to meditate upon it and to draw further help and direction from it. We thank you that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And we thank you that that's why we have a Savior. We thank you that you preserved the nation of Israel so that you could bring forth a Savior. And we realize that that's why we sit here this morning. Lord, may there be no one in my hearing today, here or on the Internet, who does not trust in this Savior to pay for their sins and to make them righteous and to deliver them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your hymn-